This is the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames. Brought to you by Special Needs Family Resources, LLC. For the next hour, we'll be discussing the particular challenges and real-life solutions for families with special needs. If you found us, please know that you are not alone. To find out more, go to SpecialNeedsFamilyHour.com. Now, it's your host, Julie Ames, on AM860, The Answer. Thanks for listening today to the Special Needs Family Hour. I'm Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. Our show is dedicated to helping parents and caregivers who are caring for special people. The theme of the show is the essay, Welcome to Holland, by Emily Pearl Kingsley. Kingsley describes the experience of raising a child with a disability. I am often asked to describe the experience of raising a child with a disability to try to help people who have not shared that unique experience to understand it, to imagine how it would feel. It's like this. When you're going to have a baby, it's like planning a fabulous vacation trip to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and make your wonderful plans. The Colosseum, the Michelangelo David, the gondolas in Venice. You may even learn some handy phrases in Italian. It's all very exciting. After months of eager anticipation, the day finally arrives. You pack your bags and off you go. Several hours later, the plane lands. The stewardess comes in and says, Welcome to Holland. Holland, you say? What do you mean, Holland? I signed up for Italy. I'm supposed to be in Italy. All my life I've dreamed of going to Italy. But there's been a change in flight plan. They've landed in Holland, and there you must stay. The important thing is they haven't taken you to a horrible, disgusting, filthy place, full of pestilence, famine, and disease. It's just a different place. So you must go out, buy a new guidebook, and you must learn a whole new language and you will meet a whole new group of people you will never have met. It's just a different place. A slower pace than Italy, less flashy than Italy, but after you've been there for a while and you catch your breath, you look around and you begin to notice that Holland has windmills and Holland has tulips. Holland even has Rembrandts. But everyone you know is busy coming and going from Italy, and they're all bragging about what a wonderful time they had there. And for the rest of your life, you will say, Yes, that's where I was supposed to go. That's what I had planned. And the pain of that will never, ever, ever, ever go away because the loss of that dream is a very, very significant loss. But if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special, the very lovely things about Holland. And I say hooray for Holland. Obviously, Holland is a code word for living life with those with disabilities. My hope and prayer is that the challenges we all face in Holland will make us better people. I tend to become emotional when reciting this essay, especially the part about Holland having windmills, tulips, and windbrands. My emotion is recognition of the beauty, greatness, and uniqueness to be found in Holland by living with those who have special needs. This has been a good week in Holland. Our oldest two daughters, Maria and Christina, are on the autism spectrum and have intellectual disabilities. Our youngest daughter, Anna, is a typical teenager. Today we have a great show. We will be discussing the book, No More Chasing Normal, The Emotional Survival Guide for Parents and Children with Autism, Down Syndrome, and All Other Disabilities with author and counselor, Larissa Stansel. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM 860, The Answer. Please join us on the other side. We'll be right back. To reach Julie or any of the guests on today's show, 
Call 813-816-2637. That's 813-816-2637. Or go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM860, The Answer. Today, we are discussing the book, No More Chasing Normal, The Emotional Survival Guide for Parents of Children with Autism, Down Syndrome, and all other disabilities with author and counselor, Larissa Stansel. Hi, Larissa. Could you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in helping those with special needs? Hi, Julie. Absolutely. Um, thank you for having me on the show. I am thrilled. I Your book was awesome. It is, uh, you know, I've obviously been doing this for 21 years. That's the age of my oldest daughter. And I've never read a book that really encompass encompass the full emotional spectrum of all the things I have felt in my life. And your book, the whole book, um, just for the audience so that they'll know, um, the book is really a story, and I it's the character of Lori. And this character, she ha- she's in a marriage. She has this child her within the first year of her marriage, and it's not a good marriage. And of course, I'm reading for the first five chapters, trying to figure out what happens with this marriage. I know it was like a cliffhanger, but at the end of each of these vignettes, you explain it what in in real in everyday language, explain what's going on emotionally with the husband, the wife, the child, the interactions with the teachers, other people in society to include other family members. And and then we find this young lady, Lori, um, proceeding to date and situation a couple situations there. And then she finds someone, she gets married, she goes to graduate school, and it. And you do an excellent segment on the marriage part. So it's just an awesome book. But um, t- please tell the audience how you got involved in special needs. Okay, well, well, I'm so glad that the book was um, so meaningful, as I feel it will be extremely validating for many parents. Um, my background, I did return to school later um, to pursue a master's in counseling. And I am now a licensed professional counselor. I have my own private practice. My background has been uh, working with parents with special needs. I've worked at a university level with individuals with disability. And, of course, I have a soon-to-be 25-year-old male with autism. He is my son, my pride and joy. So I have lived this roller coaster. And I know what I experienced firsthand in the the mid-'90s you know, the flagship was the Autism Society of America. And back in the day, you know, I started a chapter and in 150 members, um, we we located families in my area uh, within a year. And so really just watching and observing and learning and seeing these emotional cycles play out, yet everyone was silent about it. And it was so frustrating. And, you know, I watched everyone kind of chasing normal. And, you know, it hit me uh, when my son turned 16 and just grief punched me in the gut again. And so I started looking for, you know, where is the the model? Where is something that describes what what I know I'm feeling and many other parents? And there was nothing. And for me, that was just not okay. And that that really sparked a passion 
for me to get something in print and put a name on what we do experience. And and I want to say this right up front for the listening audience and people out there. Our children are not our source of grief. We love our children. They are awesome. They bring us so much joy. The grief comes when we're trying to plug them into a society that is geared towards normal, and they don't meet those developmental markers and the challenges and when behavior is challenging and how it just derails everything we expected. And there is a cyclic process that continues. And so that's how that came about. Yes, and it was interesting when we talk about model, I don't think people realize this because we're so used to the model of when we find out um, a loved one is dying, has died or is dying, the whole, the whole idea of the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, that is a grief model. Yes, and, that's correct. Yes, and when you were talking about a, a new grief model for what we experienced, can you explain how and why you did develop the grief model and some of the stages in the model? Absolutely, yes, because the grief models that are out there that are commonplace, as you said, when someone dies, society responds to um, people expecting them to grieve. We might bring them food, and we respond in hopefully most of the time helpful ways because we kind of understand what they're going through. But because there is no name, there is no model, or there has not been until now to describe what we experience as parents, Society doesn't even know how to respond appropriately, and most of the time we don't understand our own emotional processes. So I thought it was very important to put this into a model form and put a name on it, which is atypical cyclic grief. Our journey is atypical. Our children are atypical. And it is very different. There are very unique aspects to our grief and emotional responses that you know, differ significantly from typical grief when someone has died. So can you explain, like, some of the stages? And- sure, absolutely. Um, once the diagnosis is received, and oftentimes prior to diagnosis, people might start experiencing fear, denial, doubt. Yes. Um, <laughs> and and, and we're, we will talk more in depth as we go through the segments um, about each stage and how that impacts us. But just as an overall, you know, once we've received a diagnosis, anger is a common response because we feel slighted. We don't understand. We can feel confused. But that's followed by a unique aspect called guilt. Yes. And yes, there is a thing called survivor's guilt in typical um, grief, but this is different. The guilt that we experience as parents is we can actually feel guilty for even grieving, for seeing our children as, as, as having a loss or challenges. It makes us feel like bad parents. Right. And that interrupts the grieving process just overall. And there's other aspects of guilt that we will um, talk about later and how it impacts our parenting. But once, once we are cycling through that, we experience the emotional conflict, which is kind of a battlefield. That's what I describe as, you know, what we encounter every single day when we're faced with all of the challenges, the secondary traumas of things people say, mm-hmm. well-meaning things, but they can be hurtful. And we, we are kind of left in unfamiliar territory, but yet we still have to meet others' expectations. Yes. And then, you know, once life becomes so challenging, it can lead to isolation because we as parents can feel like we, we, ha- we don't belong anywhere. We can be surrounded by people, but yet yes. still 
feel extremely isolated. And as we all know, it is common for isolation to lead to feelings of depression. Um, and so I talk a little bit about that. But what is also unique with um, atypical cyclic grief is you have, because of the ebb and flow and pro- progression of our children, we can get a renewed sense of hope. And that is the place where maybe they've made progression. They're getting closer to the quote-unquote normal. Right. And we feel a sense of, okay, we can do this. And then something will happen, which represents an unmet milestone. That could be regression, or that could be, you know, maybe they turn 13 and they're a teenager and you see all the other teenagers and your child is miles apart. Yes. Um, or behavior is very different. And that can really feel very unexpected and launch us back into this grief cycle. And so it cycles throughout the lifetime um, repetitively. And so if you, you, as you talked about, like the original the, what we're familiar with, the grief model that Kubler-Ross talked about, um, the, the stages, the end stages acceptance, that does not apply to atypical cyclic grief because right. our kids are constantly moving. They're, they're changing throughout life, so there is no finality. So yes. we don't really know exactly what to accept. Therefore, our mark cannot be acceptance. It's got to be adaption. We've got to learn to adapt. And we will talk more in depth about what that means. But basically, let me say this, too. People do not move just like from one stage to the next in this nice little order. And you can feel many things simultaneously. But I thought it was really important just to kind of validate and put it all together. And here's our outline so that when children are diagnosed, I hope one day this will become a household uh, model that everyone's aware of so that people can be told this is normal, this is what you will feel and experience, and this is how it can impact your life, and here's some ways you can handle it so that they're not having to figure it out the hard way and grieve in silence like many of us had to do for so long. Yes, that's so true. Now, does it affect everyone the same? Are there different degrees as far as what affects the experience of grief? Yes, there's absolutely different degrees, and this is kind of a common sense thing. Um, For instance, let's say that a parent has a child with a learning disorder, and that can be challenging. Um, And if the child, you know, may not be able to graduate um, with a a standard degree or attend college, um, they're going to feel some aspects of this grief um, model. However, because the child may also still be able to live independently, maybe marry, so it's not going to affect all areas of their life. It's less pervasive. So uh, in contrast, you know, I'll use my son, the autism um, affects every area of his life. And he still lives with us at home, which is fine. You know, we've adapted to that, and he has a good life. But, you know, he, he will not marry um, or have children, at least I don't think, you know, as of right now, right. that's here. Um, and so because of that, there's more losses. So the degree to which um, I've been affected as a parent and many others who fall into that, it's going to be a, a, a higher level of grief because there's more losses, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Well, why don't we do this? Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about parents and the reactions Um, I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM 860, The Answer. I'm here with Larissa Stansel, the author of No More Chasing Normal, The Emotional Survival Guide for Parents of Children with Autism, Down Syndrome, and All Other Disabilities. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. 
to reach Julie or any of the guests on today's show, call 813-816-2637. That's 813-816-2637. Or go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM860, The Answer. Today we are discussing the book, No More Chasing Normal, The Emotional Survival Guide for Parents of Children with Autism, Down Syndrome, and All Other Disabilities, with author and counselor, Larissa Stansel. Hi, Larissa. We were just discussing, we were going to move on to ex, uh, about parents' reactions. And how do you, how do our past experiences shape our reactions as parents? Well, and this is, it, it, it completely defines for us, we, it defines parenthood, how we define it internally. It defines, you know, what we think was awful. Um, you know, basically, it defines and shapes our expectations. I refer to this as schema, but we'll just talk about it more in typical, normal terms of right. just, what we expect in life. Um, and so, if you think about this, all parents, and this is not exclusive of just parents with children with, with disability, but we none of us want our children to suffer what we've suffered. Right. And therefore, um, if we maybe lost a parent or we were made fun of at school or we saw someone made fun of, none of us want that to happen to our children. Yes. And so we are going to have a higher sensitivity towards those things. Therefore, you know, in the book, I talk about Lori, um, her past history growing up. You know, she, she didn't have the right clothes and she didn't fit in. And, yes. You know, she, kind of made fun of, and so as a parent, she really dressed, um, you know, her her child to try to fit in, and fitting in became very important because she didn't want him right. to suffer she did, and so the disability created, caused him to stand out even more, so that was her own personal trigger, as well as the um, challenges for her son, right. and so that's true for all parents, and it's very important for parents to be able to, to step back and reflect and say, okay, what, how has my past influenced my parenting? What are my triggers? Um, are they at play in how I'm parenting? Am I overreacting? Because it can help us find more balance when it comes to, um, you know, our reactions in society when our kids maybe are doing things that people are staring at. Yes. Or, you know, make us feel, and because it's going to happen. Yes, it and, does. You know, yes, it does. And so we have to figure out um, what we do with that. Yes. Now, why do we have such strong reactions to a diagnosis? Well, and that's a really good question because, uh, you know, I, I talk about schema again, and that is what we come to expect. Everyone, before you have children, we just kind of have this unspoken uh, outline of what life's going to look like, not in detail. We don't know what color hair and, you know, what their personalities are going to be like, but we certainly do have an expectation that they will walk, they will talk, they will have average intelligence, they will go to school, you know, they may grow up, live independently married. That's just a rough right. outline all, we all come to experience. When that derails, we go from what is familiar to the complete unknown. And if any of us, we know that the unknown is, is frightening. We don't know. It's sort of like um, getting directions where everyone around you has got directions except the ones you were given were in a foreign language you don't understand. Yes. And that's what's 
feels like. Yes, that's so true. Now, can denial can that denial phase start prior to the diagnosis? Absolutely, uh, mine certainly did. Um, I, I kind of <laughs> laugh. My my dad, he's always been such a champion um, for my son. And I remember prior to diagnosis, and you know, he would just do the odd, the, the most bizarre things. And I had never heard of autism. I didn't know right. what it was. And so he did have spoken words. You know, so there were some things he did that were typical and yeah. some that were very not typical. But my father would say, you know, oh, he's fine. That's typical. That's normal. He's going to grow out of that. You'll see. He'll catch up. <laughs> and that is exactly what I wanted to hear. Right. You know, because here I'm a nervous mom. And and so it did. It, it Those um, reinforcers, as I call them, yes. from others. Um, can cause denial to last longer. The other thing that can cause it to last longer is the progression of our children and splintered skills. So let's say that the child has a diagnosis of autism and our stereotypical view, or it could be Down syndrome, it could right. be whatever. And so the stereotypical view that we have of that diagnosis, our kids don't meet it. And so we look at that and we say, oh, I just don't know, you know. I mean, I, I really think, and look, look what they can do. Yes. If they really have that, could they really be doing this? And it, so it can make denial last much longer, um, and also it has some dangers with it. Yes. Can you explain? Of, absolutely. Let me touch on a couple of those. It can cause parents to reject necessary, important information about their children. For instance, let's say early intervention is important and treatment. Well, if a parent is just really not accepting, right, and they're right. in denial phase, they're not going to seek out treatment. Does that mean they're a bad parent? Absolutely not. It just means that the denial is keeping them at a place that they're not, they're not ready and able to get that treatment. And early intervention can be extremely important for every child. Um, and the other thing it can do, which is, which is extremely uh, important for parents to be aware of, is it can cause you to react inappropriately and, mm. and unfairly to your children. Because if we, if we do not see and recognize their limitations as being part of a disability, then we're going to hold them to a different standard. True. And it would sort of be like if you had a child with diabetes and you were scolding them because their blood sugar was dropping. Well, no parent would ever do that. And so we have to have awareness in what are our children, what can they help and what can they not. And sometimes that can be murky waters. But at least not being in denial helps us, you know, swim through and sort through that. Right. Now, how is denial unique in the atypical cyclic grief model? Well, because, because again, um, atypical cyclic grief, ACG, as I refer to it, it is uh, non-finite. So it's, it, it, it's unending. Think about death. You know, death is final, and the grief is very real and very painful. But people can only deny that someone is gone so long. True. Until, until all the reinforcers in their life, you know, everything points them back to know they're gone. So they have to accept it. Denial in ACG we have things pointing us in the opposite direction, that maybe this isn't it. Maybe this isn't final. Maybe they'll grow out of it. Yes. I remember when my son was young, even though I had the diagnosis and I was tasting normal with everything I had, I still in some way thought that he would be um, a different version of himself whenever he hit his teenage years right. or as an adult. Yes. Me too. <laughs> right? Right. Because you keep thinking, oh, they'll grow out of it. And my children had genetic anomaly, and I didn't want that diagnosis. I didn't want anyone to 
no because I didn't want them to be treated differently. But when it became obvious that they weren't going to grow out of their situation and the school system was perplexed, then I said, okay, they have a genetic anomaly. Yes. And then once I told the school system um, it was going to be Easter weekend, I told my family right after Easter, just in case somehow they heard. <laughs> but I didn't want the subject of Easter to be that they have a genetic anomaly and they inherited from me and this is why they are what they are and dealing with all that. And then what surprised me after going through so many of these, well, going through your atypical cyclic grief model, all of a sudden I found I was dealing with everyone else's grief. Yes. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then and then really bizarre denial things of, of what, well, it can't be you about me. Yes. You know, it, it couldn't be me. <laughs> it's yes. like, well, guess what? It is. But, but you don't know that. And and just bizarre things. Anyway, so it's just so true what you're saying. So so here's a question for you. How is our child's progress or lack of progress linked to the denial and the ACG grief process in general? Well, that is, again, an excellent question because um, we define uh, – we, we're always kind of looking for this place of homeostasis, you know, where it's static, where we figured out – Okay, now we know how to do this. Right. And so um, as our children are growing, any child, even, you know, take out disability, but your ch- children are going to grow. They're going to have advancements. They're going to, you know, sometimes they're going to have progression. And so in disability, um, what we're trying to do is figure out, you know, what are their limitations? What are their abilities? You know, what are they able to do? And so we will continually uh, land on these maybe plateaus where we feel like, okay, I can do this. And so we define psychologically that that's our finality. And then, so then what happens is when that changes, right? Yes. Then that affects the whole grief process all over again. And that, that is really what keeps us in that cyclic nature because we're constantly, even though we may have adapted to the limitations, but when those change and when that looks different, we feel it all over again. And so the progress or regression is definitely linked to both denial, but also to the grief process in general. And it's very hard to put words to that. And yes. that, that is, you know, an, another reason I thought it was so incredibly important to put a label on this and an outline to give parents a voice, to give them for what they have experienced. Because we just don't know really how to articulate what that feels like. But if you think your child's doing great and then all of a sudden they're not doing great, maybe a new challenge, a new behavior, you know, something they weren't able to achieve and you weren't prepared for that. Yes. Well, well, why don't we, let's take a break and then when we come back, let's talk about um, some of the other um, parts of grief such as anger and guilt. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM 860, The Answer. I am here with Larissa Stanzel, the author of No More Chasing Normal, The Emotional Survival Guide for Parents of Children with Autism, Down Syndrome, and All Other Disabilities. Please join us on the other side. We'll be right back. To reach Julie or any of the guests on today's show, call 813-816-2637. That's 813-816-2637. Or go to Special Needs Family Hour. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. 
I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM860, The Answer. Today, we are discussing the book, No More Chasing Normal, The Emotional Survival Guide for Parents of Children with Autism, Down Syndrome, and All Other Disabilities with author and counselor, Larissa Stansel. And we've been discussing the atypical cyclic grief that parents with children who have disabilities or special needs experience. And we were going to move on and discuss anger and guilt and some of those other aspects. So, Larissa, is anger a normal reaction to your child's diagnosis? And does it? It is a normal reaction, really, in any form of grief. Um, because, but as it applies to um, ACG, it is really, um, you know, we feel like our children get ripped off. Yes. So it's an unlevel playing field, and we want them to be able to, to have happiness and success and all the things every parent does. And when it just feels like the mountain in front of us, in front of them, is just too great, it can, it can make us start to feel really angry and resentful, not at our children, but just at the fact that, that, that this has happened, yes. that they've been, you know, ripped off, so to speak. I hate using that term, but that's how we feel. We feel slighted. We feel like our children are slighted. Yes. And then how does the guilt play out? Guilt is very unique um, in atypical cyclic grief because um, there's a lot of parental guilt. Um, in my research, you know, I found different professionals that had written uh, professional articles to other professionals, not to parents. Right. But they also recognize that, you know, causation for mothers. Um, sometimes mothers, it's common for a mom to feel like, did I do this? Did I do something when I was pregnant? Right. Did I not care of myself? Is this my fault? Does this come from my side of the family? My, you know, just feeling really guilty. Was I not a good mom when they were born? Did I not love them enough? Um, right. And for fathers, it can be um, there. They feel like they somehow are not able to protect their children. And both of these responses, the guilt, can cause an overprotective response or an overdedicated response. And an overprotective parent can actually cause a child to feel more fearful right. and, you know, more like less coping skills. And over dedicated uh, results in dysfunctional families and, and marriages. Because if everything is geared towards that child, um, because you just got to figure out how to make them better, then you're not going to be expending resources that are needed in other relational areas of your life. And so your marriage is going to be back burner. Sometimes your other children, um, if they're typical, are back burner because they're quote-unquote, okay. And it's so important to identify, number one, um, you didn't cause it, and to recognize where is the guilt impacting my life? Is it driving my behavior? Am I giving to my marriage? Because let's be honest, the challenges that are placed on families that have children with special needs with demands and, uh, you know, sometimes that can be financial demands, yes. time, uh, limitations as far as child care and all of the above. That impacts how, whether or not you're able to go out with your husband, how you both even see the child. You yes. know, and it's very common that in marriages that whoever is the primary caregiver and with the child most of the time has much higher experience 
exposure rate to the limitations, whereas the parent who might be the one who's off, you know, the breadwinner, they are not going to see the limitations spotlighted as much. Therefore, you can have parents that see the children at different levels of functioning. And I've worked with families where the one parent accuses the other as being negative. You know, why are you always seeing them as they can't do this? Mm -hmm. And it creates friction and conflict within the marriage. And so it's so important to help our families, you know, bond and come together in unity and have an understanding of how to communicate and how that looks different and how all of the guilt um, and the grief cycle is at play in that. Yes, and in the chapter titled The Battlefield in My Homeland, what part of the grief process are you describing, and how is it unique? Yeah, that is very unique to us because, again, you know, we are impacted with this emotional grief that we carry, but then we have to go out, and no one really knows um, what we're going through, and so we have these daily interactions. Uh, one of the one of the things I talk about uh, in the book is I remember this parent I worked with, and you know she had been out um, in the community helping someone, and this uh, parent who meant well, and he was just going on and on about these disruptive kids in the classroom, and they're taken away from these good kids, and the mother was so emotionally injured by that, and I right. saw these secondary traumas. Now, did that man intentionally do that? Of course not. But again, because of society's lack of awareness of what we experience and what we're going through, they don't even, they're not aware of these traumas. And so then you have the challenging behaviors. So we have spoken words, judgment from others, all of those things when we interact in our society on a daily basis create secondary traumas in a battlefield-type environment. And um, if you've lived it, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. And you try not, I always try not to take anything personal. And uh-huh. I feel like I have a pretty tough skin. But um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think we do have to try to have a tough skin. But I also hope um, through the book uh, to help educate so that we don't have to have as tough of a skin, but also we can provide grace. Because one of the things I think is super important is had I not had this journey myself, there is no way that I would have known or understood what it's like. So therefore, for all of the others out there, if they've not had our journey, they might be saying things that are hurtful or inappropriate, but they are oblivious to it because they don't know. We don't know what we don't know. True. And we have to provide grace to people um, whenever that happens and, and try not to take it personal. You know, another disadvantage is Western culture. Yes. You know, we, we our, our society that we live in sort of promotes this, this blanket of shame, as I call it, that, you know, when you can't talk about a child with special needs and mention grief at the same time. You know, that's terrible. We just have to focus on ability. Well, I think we do need to focus on ability because I believe every individual has unique uh, strengths and is significant and contributes to our society regardless of disability or not. However, I think to negate and, and say, well, let's just pretend like and bury our heads in the sand that there's not an emotional reaction is completely unfair and short-sighted. 
Yes. And so it's not that we're grieving because we have these wonderful children. We're grieving because of the society and what we're trying to plug them into. And my goal is to break that silence barrier and break that shame because some of the most dedicated and loving parents I've met have been parents caring for children with disability of of all different types. Yes. Well, you talk about cave dwelling, referring to the need to isolate from others, even society as a whole. Is is that common in ACG and does that lead? Yes, it's absolutely common, and, and it's very much linked to we lose our sense of belonging in society. You know, think about water cooler conversations at work. What yes. do people talk about? They're usually talking about their children or family. And so if maybe the day that you've had with your child has been you're just hoping they're going to be able to stay in school, right, right? just for a day, but then it rips something off the wall, um, and, and then you're in this water cooler conversation and someone's talking about, honor roll and da 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 you know, you just really feel left out. You don't know how to uh, engage in that. And so you start to feel very isolated with your peer group, with our society, and that does lead um, to depression. And, and it makes you feel like, you know what, it's just easier to stay home. And I call that cave dwelling. And what I want everyone out, and you're listening, everyone out there right now in the listening audience to hear is you are not alone. In 2016, you know, the census was 322 million people in the United States. One in six children in the United States has a developmental disability. Do the math. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people experiencing atypical cyclic grief. It's time for us to, to talk about it. To, you know, it not be the elephant in the room in our life anymore, to validate parents, to band together and help us get through this in healthier ways. Wow. Well said. Um, why don't we take a break? And when we come back, let's talk about self-care and marriage. Okay. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM 860, The Answer. I'm here with Larissa Stansel, the author of No More Chasing Normal, The Emotional Survival Guide for Parents of Children with Autism down syndrome and all other disabilities please stay with us we will be right back to reach julie or any of the guests on today's show call 813-816-2637 that's 813-816-2637 or go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com we'll be right back Welcome back to the special needs family hour with julie ames on am860 the answer to contact Julie, go to SpecialNeedsFamilyHour.com. That's SpecialNeedsFamilyHour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM860, The Answer. Today, we are discussing the book, No More Chasing Normal, The Emotional Survival Guide for Parents of Children with Autism, Down Syndrome, and All Other Disabilities with author and counselor, Larissa Stansel. Larissa, we've been discussing the atypical cycle of grief for those families with special needs, and you talk about cave dwelling, referring to the need to, oh, I'm sorry, we we just discussed cave dwelling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about self-care and the importance to the uh, parents and the family and the marriage. Yes, and for the sake of time, I'm going to try to be brief, and okay. I would encourage everyone um, to order a copy of the book because it goes into much more detail than we're able to today. But, you know, I, I think parents need to be aware that, number one, we have to care for ourselves. And, and what I mean by that is not just taking bubble baths. 
I mean our marriage and our other relationships. And marriage in and of itself, um, first-time marriages have over a 50% failure rate in our country. And so when you add special needs to that or any other thing that's taxing, that's going to make it that much more difficult. And so I would encourage everyone um, to really give time. If you want to be a couple after you have children, you have to be a couple while you're raising your children. And you, you for, to care for your children, especially long-term, You've got to be a whole well unit, and so you have to invest in that for, to make that happen. Yes, and you talk about um, about the renewed sense of hope stage, and how does how does that contribute to our cyclic nature of the grief? Well, Absolutely. As I said before, you know, that can be progression. That can be, um, you know, maybe they've really made some great advancements and we really feel like they're doing well and we have figured it out. And then all of a sudden that changes. You know, um, for me personally, uh, my son, when he turned 16, you know, I thought I had this whole grief thing sewn up. And when he turned 16, I was completely unprepared for the grief that was just going to literally punch me in the gut all over again when I looked around and realized that there were bonfires. And, you know, all of the kids were still very nice to him, but they had clearly left him behind um, developmentally and socially. And that just hurt. It's like someone just literally punched me. And I was so unprepared for that. And that launched me back into that grief cycle. So anytime we hit, um, and, and, and that ushers me into the next thing is the unmet milestone. Yes. That's kind of what I call the wrinkle in the carpet. I love that, that. Yes, because, you know, we think we're just, we've hit our stride, we're doing good, and we are completely unexpecting it, and boom. You know, Lori, it was the uh, marriage of her of her stepson, and she, she saw the contrast of, you know, her own son standing there, and she knew marriage would never be for him, and she was so unprepared for those emotions, and it just, she fell flat on her face. And that is what many um, of us go through on a, you know, just on this journey, on this atypical journey. And it keeps us cycling through grief over and over. Where I think adapting, and that kind of leads us to the last part of the model, which is moving to adaptation. And that's where we start to recognize, number one, awareness is power. You know, being aware that there's not going to be a finality here. But we do know that our lives are changed, and the lives of our children are changed. And we do have some rough idea of what normal may look like for us, our normal. And so learning how to figure out how do we have quality of life with what we have, you know, and that doesn't mean we don't, you know, try to help our children. Of course we do, you know, but we don't have to meet this quote-unquote normal mark to have quality of life. You know, perspective really does shape our reality. If you see your life as good and you see your child as happy, adult child or not, then we're going to feel pretty content with what we have. And learning how to get our needs met, getting the things that we, you know, post-retirement, if you have a child that's with you throughout the lifespan, you know, your retirement years are going to look different. Everything might look different. And so you have to, and, you know, after, you know, when you're gone. Yes. You know, and so many family members, you know, will talk to me about that. Yes. Um, well, I'm so afraid, you know, what's going to happen. And, you know, and so, you know, I tell people, listen, you're not going to have all the answers. And we have. We're to running out of time. I, people can buy the book at Amazon. Yes. And how can they contact you? Yes. OK, 
Okay, so they can contact me through my email, which is stancilcounseling at comcast.net. Let me say that again, stancilcounseling, all one word, lowercase, at comcast.net. You can also access my website at www.stancilcounseling.com. Again, that's www.stancilcounseling.com. Google the book. Um, you can just Google No More Tasting Normal. There will be a link to Amazon. Awesome. It's downloadable on Kindle. So I would encourage you to, um, everyone, get a copy. Thank you so much. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM 860, The Answer. Please join us next Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. Thank you for listening to the Special Needs Family Hour. If you've missed any part of today's program, you can get the podcast of this and every show at specialneedsfamilyhour.com. While there, please take advantage of the resources we made available. And if you're so inclined, please support the advertisers that support this program. More than anything, just know that you are not alone. And we invite you to join us next Sunday at 1 for the Special Needs Family Hour. Only on AM 860. The answer.